So while Joseph is coming up and uh, getting me some new batteries here, um, I just want to add quickly to what has already been said about the, uh, about the Sunday School thing. I'm not sure how many of you realize this is kind of unique because um, here we are promoting Sunday School. And uh, I'm not sure, like I said, how many of you realize this, but um, among other people in different churches, um, my grandpa, who was born in 1899, dates me a little bit too, I'm assuming, um, he was one of the first in the Blumenort Church to have this vision that we should do something for the children. And he, together with some other men, came up with the idea that we should do something called Sunday School. And they approached the uh, ministerial back then. They approached the ministerial back then to see if um, they would allow, this is the unique part, Sunday school to happen for the children in church. And the ministerial needed to discuss this for a little while because church was for adults. And, uh, and they came up with the idea that it would not be appropriate to have Sunday school on Sunday mornings because Sunday mornings was just for adults. Uh, but they would allow these younger radical dads who had a vision and a desire for their children to know more about Jesus uh, they would allow them to use the church on Sunday afternoons for a program for the children. That was the birth of Sunday school. Uh, ministerial needed to be convinced that it would be a good thing. And uh, now ministerial is up here trying to convince you that it's a good thing. And so in some ways Sunday school has, uh, has come full circle. Um, it's a little bit like we people are though, aren't we? Um, we're a little stubborn. And uh, sometimes we, uh, we're not too quick to recognize the vision that comes from the grassroots and that, uh, that God faithfully stirs up the grassroots to be involved and to help spur along uh, the life of the church. That's my little side note for Sunday school. So I'm driving down the street yesterday in the big town of Rosenort. And uh, this is what I see. I look again. Is this really happening? A realtor that I know from my generation, and he is trying to sell a house by serving mini donuts. What's happening here? What has happened to my generation? We are better than this. Friends, please don't judge all of us in our 50s by the ignorance of this one guy. Some of you might even know him. Honestly, I don't know who trains these realtors these days. I mean, everyone knows, or, or so I thought, at least from my generation, that if you want to sell a house, you fill it with the smell of... Fresh bread. Fresh bread. I mean, compare these two. The smell of fresh bread wafting through a house or the smell of deep fried oil. And many donuts soaked in that oil. Fill 
filled with, uh, d topped with cinnamon to try to salvage them somehow. <laughs> I mean, which house are you buying? I'm buying the one with the bread. Okay, so let's be real. I know nothing about selling houses. Somebody else here does it much more successfully. But I do know a thing or two about the smell of freshly baked bread. And in my memory bank, somewhere, there is this fact that I once heard, or maybe I dreamt it, I'm not sure, that if possible, if you have a house showing coming up, quick, bake some fresh bread and fill your house with the smell of fresh, freshly baked bread, and that is going to sell the house. That was a free uh, word of advice for, for you. Um, yeah, I will concede, I'm likely from another generation. But you gotta admit it, it is tough to beat the smell, uh, even tougher to beat the taste of freshly baked bread. I've often wondered actually why they wouldn't have made an air freshener that smells like freshly baked bread. Might not be good for those of us that are trying to kind of curb the carb intake, I'm not sure. Anyways, maybe I've lost you already this morning, I'm not sure, but if I haven't lost you yet, I encourage you to imagine the smell of freshly baked bread. Uh, oh, and then the taste of some fresh New Bothwell cheese, together with that. Oh, 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 oh. That is good. We are about to embark on a new series of messages taken from the book of John. Uh, John is probably one of the easiest Gospels to read and to understand. It's long been understood uh, by pastors and, um, and teachers. If somebody out there really wants to know more about Jesus, about who Jesus really is, then encourage them to read the book of John, the Gospel of John. Uh, in the bulletin email, if you get that, and if you don't, by the way, we'd love to sign you up for that, so talk to Pastor Jesse or myself. We'd love to, uh, to get your email into the bulletin email list. But uh, if you took note of the bulletin email, uh, there was a note in there encouraging you to read um, a certain section in John chapter 6. But what it, what it did is it identified a, a question who is Jesus really? And that's not a new question, by the way. It's, it's a totally relevant question. It's a totally modern question, but it's not at all new. Uh, let me just give you a small snippet of, uh, of biblical history. Stay with me just for a few minutes, even if you don't like history. Um, hang on, hang on. This is just a little bit. Um, so John's story of Jesus, the, the, the book of John in your Bible, in the New Testament, uh, is considered to likely be the latest written New Testament literature. Okay, so for, of all the books written in the New Testament, likely John is the one that was written latest. And it was likely written in John's old, old, old age. He is uh, he, somewhere around 95 AD. So if you do the math, Jesus uh, died somewhere around 30 AD. People, scholars, aren't quite convinced exactly what the date was, but somewhere around 30 AD. Uh, John is writing this gospel story 
in 95 AD. So it's about 60 plus years. <coughs> about 60 plus years after Jesus died. So uh, I just did the math this morning, actually, quickly. And our church, Pleasant Valley Church, is about 60 years old. And so when a church is approximately 60 years old, by that time, it has had time to develop characteristics. And it has certainly had time to develop strengths and to develop weaknesses and to develop maybe um, um, uh, certain types of, of doubts, uh, maybe certain places where the theology is, is swerving a little bit. And so the church, when John is thinking about writing his version of the story of Jesus... He is already aware of a church or, or in the context of a church that has already had enough time, 60 years old, has enough time to kind of develop these characteristics and idiosyncrasies. And, and John is observing this, and then he is going to write his story about Jesus in response to where the church is at at that point in time, 60-ish, like I said, years old. And so John is going to be addressing what he perceives to be some of the needs in the faith journey of the people 60 years post the death of Jesus. Now it's important to understand that although many of the people in their church were not alive during the time when Jesus was alive, uh, and even those that would have been alive during the time when Jesus was still alive are uh, probably were very young at the time, and many of them definitely had not, most of them definitely had never seen Jesus. However, Jesus was recent enough in their history that they never doubted the existence of a historical Jesus. Okay? They, they assumed, they knew it was a given fact that a man by the name of Jesus, a radical teacher, had lived and had died. They all knew that. It was recent enough in their history. And by the way, um, any, I think I can say it like this, any credible historian, even today, will not dispute the fact that there was a historical Jesus that lived, and he was a radical teacher, and he died somewhere around 30 AD. There's plenty of non-biblical evidence to support the fact that there was a Jesus, a historical figure by the name of Jesus, uh, who was a controversial figure in history that lived uh, in the early uh, first century and died somewhere around 30 AD. That fact is actually not disputed by historians. Neither was it disputed by the people in John's or in their early church. However, what some of them did doubt or wonder about is this Jesus that we know lived and that we know died, that, that Jesus, who really was he? Who was this Jesus <coughs> really? And I would say that continues to be probably one of humanity's big questions. Who really was, or who was this Jesus really? Was he really God's son? Was he really the Messiah that was prophesied about in the Old Testament? Is he really God 
in human flesh. This is what they were not always certain of. This is what they were tempted, even back then. It's what they were tempted to doubt. And I would say, welcome to the club. And so John writes this story, this account, this version of the story of Jesus. John writes it in response to their common doubt, which is, or their common question, who is Jesus really? He sees his brothers and sisters being tempted to doubt whether this Jesus was really God. And John himself, he knows the story. He was there. He experienced it. He saw it. He heard it. And he is convinced. And he decides to do what he can do to give these good people some ammunition to fight against their doubts. And so he writes his version of the story of Jesus. Even though it's been written three times before already, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and actually others also, but those three had become already somewhat credible accounts of the life of Jesus, John decides he's going to write another one with the specific intent of addressing this question, this doubt, who is Jesus really? And if you look at John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, right at the end of John's story, John 20, verse 30 and 31, it says this. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. John is one of the only people, the writers, who so very specifically tells his readers, his listeners, why he's writing this version, this account of the life of Jesus. And so John has a clear purpose in mind as he is writing. And he will emphasize anything about the life and teaching of Jesus that would help the people in their churches to understand that yes, Jesus is truly the Son of God. Yes, Jesus is truly God in human form. Yes, Jesus did come to bring eternal life to his people. So, for the next several weeks, we will look at very specific phrases that Jesus speaks, that John records, that Jesus speaks about himself. It appears very specifically for the purpose of helping the people believe that Jesus is God's Son and that he came to bring life to the people. And we're going to pick up on specific phrases and the specific phrases are phrases that begin with the words, I am. Jesus speaks um, seven times, very specifically, um, uses the words, I am, and then finishes the sentence with a word picture that, that helps us understand who Jesus is claiming to be, who Jesus claims that he is. This morning, the statement is found in the middle of the story in John chapter 6. Um, John chapter 6, verse 35, specifically. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me 
will never go away hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. See, Jesus was a, Jesus was a genius when it came to capturing opportunities for teachable moments. Um, and so let me just ask you, maybe you did some reading already. Um, anybody here know, anybody willing to say, um, what has just happened here? The beginning of the chapter, what has just happened? A miracle? Is that for me, Jesse? Okay, very good, thank you. Just wondering. Um, Jesus has just done a miracle, what's the miracle? Fed 5,000 people, okay? And he fed them with bread. Okay, so Jesus has, <coughs> excuse me. Jesus has just fed 5,000 people by turning five loaves, small loaves and two fishes, into enough food, into enough bread to feed 5,000 people. And so forefront, likely now, this, this uh, statement that Jesus just made here and this teaching that surrounds it is likely the day following, if we understand the chronology correctly here, um, it's likely the day following. And so uppermost in the people's minds is bread. Okay, they're all thinking about bread. They're all wondering about bread. And bread is, is, is at the top of everybody's mind, and Jesus captures, like I said, he's kind of a genius. He does that many different places in Scripture, where he uses the moment. And what is already on people's minds, he uses that to turn into some very significant teaching. And he does exactly the same thing here. And so that is why he uses this phrase, I am the bread of life. Now, um, we've got somebody connected to our church, um, Joan, who um, bakes bread. I don't know where she's at by now, 3,000 some loaves intentionally baked to give away to people. Um, I took a, I, I quickly did a little check uh, because I had this vague memory again of uh, what it says on those bags of bread that she gives away. And um, this, these are the little notes there on that bag of bread. Uh, it says, taste the hug. Uh, give us this day our daily bread. And then the second one is uh, also on that, on that um, bag. Um, I am the bread of life. And so these people here in John chapter 6, um, they had tasted the hug. Uh, they had smelled the bread. And um, if you read this little section of scripture, they are coming back for more. Um, they've tasted it, they've seen the miracle, they've smelled it, and they are coming back for more. Not just bread, but whatever amazing event is going to be next, they want to be a part of it. Uh, and so with this bread event consuming everyone's mind, everyone is thinking about bread, Jesus seizes the opportunity and he says, I am the bread of life. And he preaches a little, short little mini sermon around this statement. I am the bread of life. And he makes four different statements about this bread. And I just want to kind of highlight them from this short little section. First off, um, the statement he makes is, this bread of life came down from heaven. Now, 
for these people, and I need to, this continues to be a little bit of a history lesson here. Um, for these people, this was very familiar. Uh, for us, maybe not quite as much. But if you head to the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus, in chapter 16, um, you're going to see God's people, the Jews, after having left Egypt, heading for their promised land of Canaan, they're wandering around in the desert, and they're having a hard time finding enough food to eat, and God begins to send them manna during the night. Essentially, it rains down bread from heaven, giving the people enough food to eat for the next day. So now, here we are, 1,500 years later, the Jewish rabbis have taught the people that when the true Messiah is going to come, Remember the big doubt? They're wondering, could this be? Is this really? The rabbis had taught them, when the true Messiah is going to come, he is going to also do miracles, but more specifically, he will duplicate the miracle of manna coming down from heaven. He would give them bread from heaven. So what does Jesus do? He makes bread out of nothing. Essentially, he makes enough bread to feed 5,000 people out of five small loaves, essentially giving them bread from heaven. But that's just to get their attention. The real bread from heaven, Jesus says, is me. I am the bread of life. I came down from heaven to you. Seven times between verses 32 and 59, Jesus refers to his coming down from heaven. And he does that intentionally because they're, they're aware of this phrase. When the true Messiah comes, he will give you bread from heaven. And so he uses this phrase over and over. I came down from heaven. I came down from heaven. I came, and I am this bread of life. Essentially, he is telling them, I am the Messiah, I am the Son of God. He's answering that question, that doubt that they are wondering about. I am God in human form. <coughs> and so John specifically, intentionally picks this story to record in his account of Jesus' life and teaching because he knows the people need to hear this. They are doubting and they need to hear that Jesus specifically addressed this doubt when he said about himself, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. And I'm thinking it actually speaks to one of our big doubts too. Is Jesus really God? See, for the most part, the world does not have trouble with God. Somehow God seems generic enough that it's kind of palatable for everybody. You can use God and not really offend people. Jesus, on the other hand, is a little different. To claim that Jesus is God's Son, that Jesus is the true Messiah, that is in our world a whole nother level of commitment. And that is the question that Jesus tries to assure his listeners of, John tries to assure his readers of, and I'd like to try to assure you of, Jesus is God's Son. 
I am the bread of life. That came down from heaven. That's the first statement. Second statement, the bread of life came down from heaven. The bread of life is free. Uh, maybe we can say just like the mini donuts uh, yesterday. I, I think they were free. And if I understand correctly, then there were all kinds of people at that open house yesterday, people that are even sitting here today, you know who you are, that went to that house to eat free mini donuts, even though you had no intent of buying that house. You were there simply to eat free mini donuts. Um, it's a fact of life. You want to attract people to something, to some event, you need to offer them free food, mini donuts, bread, whatever it is. Free mini donuts. That, by the way, is not just a Mennonite problem. We've been, we've been accused uh, by many different people, by ourselves mostly, that we are always out for freebies, especially free food. Um, I found that to be reality everywhere you go. Uh, people are into free food. And apparently it was even a first century Palestine problem. Because these people were coming back to try to find Jesus. And Jesus very specifically <clears throat> challenges them about why, we're going to get to that in a minute, did you really come to look for me this morning? Because I filled your stomachs for free yesterday. Free food. And so Jesus, again, jumps on the opportunity and he says, This bread of life that came down from heaven is free. So since you are here, and you are listening, he is saying to the people, let me tell you that this bread of life, uh, this eternal life that comes through me, well, that is actually free also. Not just the bread I gave you yesterday, but what I'm offering you now, the real bread of life, is free also. If you check verses 28 and 29, uh, they ask, what must we do? They use the word work. Uh, it could also be translated labor. What must we do in order to get this eternal life or to inherit this, this bread? What must we do? And Jesus answers using the same word work. And Jesus says the work of God is this. To believe. Remember what the big deal is here? The big question? The big doubt? They're struggling to Believe. Because they're wondering, could it is it really true? Who's this Jesus? Is he really the Son of God? Is he really the Messiah? Is he really God in human flesh? And Jesus says, the work of God is this. To believe. Believe. Believe in the one he has sent. Believe that Jesus is real. Believe that he is God's son. Believe that he came down from heaven. Believe that he is God. Believe. Probably still humanity's biggest struggle, actually. To really, really believe. To believe that salvation is through him. I am the bread of life, and this bread is free. Only believe. Jesus continues here to prepare them for his big statement, which is coming in verse 35. We already know what it is. The people here didn't know yet. 
He's preparing them. He's giving them this little introduction to his big statement, which is coming in verse 35, I am the bread of life. And he introduces them to a third quality about this bread. And he says, this bread really fills you. Like, really fills you. Like the water that I talked about to the lady at the well in John chapter 4. You take this water and you will never be thirsty again. Well, now I'm telling you, you take this bread and you will never be hungry again because it fills you. It gives you something permanent. Listen again to verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. You need to understand, people, this is bread that will last. Yesterday I gave you food that satisfies your stomach for a short period of time. Back then in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 16, I gave your forefathers bread that lasted only for a short time. I had to give it to them again the next day, and give it to them again the next day, and give it to them the next day. I want to give you bread that if you take it in, it will satisfy you and it will last forever. Real, true, full, forever life. That's what this bread is all about. He reiterates that a little bit later in the chapter in verses 49 to 51. He repeats over and over again in these verses that the benefit of taking this bread is true life. Full, complete, eternal life. Now, there's no doubt that in this story, Jesus pushes them a little bit. And he asks them the question, if you read this story from the get-go, why did you really come and find me today? Why are you really looking for me? Do you simply want your physical needs met? Do you just want small picture, outward physical benefits? Food for today so you can feel good again for a little bit? Or... Are you here because you really want to get it? Because you really want food that will last, food that will fill you permanently. Maybe that's a fair question for us also. Why are we here? I'm not just talking about here today in church, uh, but here in the, in the realm of Christianity, in the realm of Jesus and church. Um, what? Why are we here? Why are you looking for Jesus? Is it just because we think that we will help to make our life a little bit better physically here and now? I've got a few issues and I need a few physical prayers answered and so I better cozy up to Jesus for a little bit so that he can take care of those little needs for me that I've got right now. We talked a few weeks ago about what true blessings from God look like. Do you simply want a little of God's blessings for the here and now? Or do you want the bread? The water that will ensure that you are truly filled and, and ready for eternal life. Full life. Contemplate that. Jesus continues to challenge their preconceived ideas about this bread by telling them, and we're going to conclude with this, if you keep reading into 37, uh, verse 37 and 40, this bread is available for everyone. 
radical teaching for their time frame again. Whoever comes to me, terminology that he uses in verse 37, everyone who looks to the sun, verse 40, keep reading and you're going to see how hard it is for the people to accept this. It can't be that this bread would be for everyone. But Jesus, remember, is teaching them about who he really is. I came for whoever. I came for everyone. This bread of life is available for everyone. Jesus addresses their doubts. And John, by picking up on these stories, addresses the doubts of the first century Christians 60 years later. And we, I don't think we're that different. I've said that over and over this morning. We're still sitting here and thinking, really? Really? Is God, is Jesus really God's son? Is Jesus really the bread of life that he claimed to be? Really? I want to remind you what it says here in verse 29. The work of God is this, to believe. To believe. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Amen.